Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one -one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Hello, my name is Russell Parsons and I'm the editor of Marketing Week and welcome to Marketing Week Meets, a new monthly podcast in which we speak to a marketing luminary about their life, career and thoughts on the state of the marketing universe. Our criteria for interview subjects is this, people who have left a mark on marketing and of course have an opinion or two. Our guest today ticks both of those boxes. Professor Byron Sharp is the massively influential author of How Brands Grow and director of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute at the University of South Australia. Through his work there and his book How Brands Grow, he has the attention of some of the world's biggest brands, many of which have adopted his evidence-based approach. His work and thoughts are not without detractors, though, uh, with many taking issue uh, with his black-and-white approach and disagreeing with his dismissal of targeting and brand purpose, amongst other things. Welcome, Professor Sharp. Welcome. Um, I said in my intro uh, that you had the attention of some of the world's biggest brands. Is it your mission to create more converts to your belief in law-like patterns in marketing? Or is it to drive marketing and marketers to bigger and better things? In short, I suppose, what, what is it that motivates and drives your work? Well, discovering things is fun, but also disseminating, seeing people, you know, it's classic science, seeing people embrace the evidence and make changes that's that's a great sense of satisfaction when you see that happening um are you wanting to improve or drive improvements in in marketing is that your primary motivation for doing what you do yes yes absolutely marketing is an amazing force i mean it, it's lifted millions of people out of poverty it's a terribly important thing but we can still do doesn't you know it's, it's a big part of our lives and we can do better at it so that's one thing but the, the other thing is just a continuation of you know the scientific revolution and the enlightenment moving marketing in some ways out of the dark ages of mm. of, of just um, intuition and belief and getting marketers to actually you know it's not about converting them to certain ideas it's, it's about them turning them into proper skeptical evidence-based thinkers so they can truly think for themselves mm. Mm. rather than being slaves to fashion and theory but I just want to take you back, I suppose, to you spent the majority of your career in marketing. and um, yes. What was it that appealed to you about marketing? Uh, well, actually, I, I thought I was, I, was, I was studying management and um, I didn't terribly enjoy the management organisational behaviour. Sort of, I thought, it, having come from a sort of humanities background i saw this as a lot of sort of pseudo intellectual stuff um mm. people inventing frameworks for the sake of frameworks you, you know i'd i'd, I'd made quite a, a switch from that to to study business and I, I really wanted to learn about business obviously doing accounting things but that that wasn't my love of my life and then you know i had these marketing lectures and they talked about firms existing because customers needed things and and working out how to get the right things to the right people and uh that seemed to me what was fundamentally what business was about. So I thought that was that was great. It seemed to be much more common sense. I enjoyed Phil Collar's textbook. You know, even though you know, I'm on full record of saying that it's 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 pretty, you know, it's just more common sense cookbook rather than than, than sort of scientific evidence. But it, it was still for me, as a as a as a young person, this was quite eye opening. It taught me about business. So 
that's what put me on a path to marketing. You created the Ehrenberg Bass Institute in 1995, I believe. And since you joined there, you've published several notable pieces of work, chief among them uh, in 97, some work around the effects of brand loyalty programs. And then that brings to, to 2010 and the aforementioned How Brands Grow, when that was published. When you were putting that together, and indeed perhaps just before it was published, did you get a sense that this was going to be the work that it ended up being and having the influence that it ended up being? Did you feel that it was a, an important piece of work that's going to resonate? I knew it resonated with people because you know many of the chapters were based on on presentations, um, seminars that done, and particularly a lot of work with uh, Thomas Bain at Mountain View Learning. So we you know we'd done this in in United States and in Europe, and so you know we knew this was new knowledge for people, and it was quite confronting and it was quite important. That said. You know, it's 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 a it's a it's a research based book, uh, so I wasn't expecting it to ever be necessarily a bestseller. Though I did think it would probably just keep on selling. I thought, you know, it might be something like, uh, even though it's a rather different book than Reason Trout's Positioning. But if you look at that book, I mean, that's very old now. But it, you know, it just keeps selling, keeps selling, and, and so I, I knew it wasn't a, a faddish book. I, I knew it would probably stay around for a mm. long time. It wasn't written for the main marketplace, so we were actually asked by advisory board. It was written to be a book so that when the marketing director was making changes, they could put this in the CEO's hands and say, "Look, you know, look, you know, you here we're making changes in marketing again, uh, but this time there's it's not fashion. There's some real mm. substance behind it, and this is something you can give to the CEO and the CFO." That's why it was launched without a, a you know launched without a marketing plan because mm. it was really for our sponsors, not for the mm. main market. Mm. It has, as I say, been an influential book. Um, there are a lot of people out there that use uh, the empirical data that was published in it, but it's not without detractors. It isn't without people who have and some, said to me... And some of those detractors have even read the book. <laughs> I mean, um, OK, well, let me put it open to you before I put Perhaps some of those. Of Plain devil's advocate. I mean... There are uh, criticisms, they are uh, far and wide, and perhaps they're not necessarily always coming from a good place. But to give you um, some of the ones that have been said to me, that there's too much focus perhaps on FMCG and not enough appreciation of... Well, that's why we wrote How Brands Grow too, which yeah. is services and durables and emerging markets. For mm. People who said, well, does this you know, apply outside of you know big western developed economies and does it apply for services and does it apply for durables so we did that you know deliberately mm. what's your favorite misreading and 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 correct reading even of uh, of how brands grow my, my my favorite misreading because because it's delightful to rebut it and it's useful to get across to people is when people say byron sharp says there's no loyalty because actually i can't remember what page it is something like 58 or something i mean it says loyalty is everywhere mm. so that's really useful because it helps move people onto a more nuanced understanding of of what the actual evidence shows. My least favourite is where is where people say, uh, and you do get this. This has happened several times by some sort of well, it's almost smart ass, isn't it? Sort of smart ass consultants who go, "Aha! I've discovered that that, that you know when when brands grow, uh, or that some of their loyalty metrics also go up. So you know, it's not just through the acquisition of new customers." You know, and I, I, which I respond somewhat wearily, 
you know, congratulations, you've discovered the double in Double Jeopardy. <laughs> so, I mean, that's my least favourite because it's just so lame. <laughs> Is there any point between when it was first published and, and now that you thought to yourself, I didn't get quite, that quite right or that's wrong or that needs looking at again? You seem to me to be a, a person very much at ease with the work that they do. Uh, any moments of reflection, of sober uh, reflection and doubt? As, yeah, we. I mean, we are fairly confident because there's just been so much replication work. So, uh, I mean, it'd be interesting to see if, if if you ever come across a critic who can actually show data mm. on anything, just rather than reflecting their unease or their misinterpretation. Uh, there are certainly things I would, well, you know, I mean, always reflect on and re- revise and rewrite uh, work. Uh, hence the, the, the subsequent publications. I certainly didn't explain the natural monopoly law very well in in the, the book, and quite surprisingly, for people who say we're terribly black and white, you know, the book stresses enormously the importance of light bias. But in you know, actual fact, you know, our subsequent research has shown we we massively understated that. We understated the importance of light bias. So if anyone thinks we're more extreme, well, unfortunately, the evidence keeps rolling in, and actually, we were far too mild. Uh, there are our lightest buyers are much lighter than we actually thought. Yeah. And actually worth more than we thought. Mm. Not in the book, but something I know that you have very strong opinions about, which I suppose is the rather faddish, and we touched upon it earlier, concepts in marketing that have become more prevalent over the last five years. Chief among them, brand purpose. You wrote a blog which, if I have the title right, no wonder marketers aren't respected even marketers hate marketers, which was obviously very provocative in the way that it was positioned and untitled. But just explore what you meant I, I, by that I don't think, for me. Okay, I don't think many people have, have read it, Russell. Uh, it should have stood more. I have. Up. You have, <laughs> yes. But, you know, it's an observation that this, you see this in business schools too. You see business schools that are actually almost anti business. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, there's widespread. Both on the right and the left wing of politics, people love these, you know, the world is going to hell type stories and, and absolute amazing ignorance of the fact that actually everything is getting better. And you know, we live in, in, in just an astonishing age where absolute poverty is declining, at, which was the norm for hundreds of thousands of years, is declining at such an incredibly rapid rate. Life expectancy increasing, infant mortality declining, all these amazing, wonderful things. And trade and, and the science that it facilitates have been the major driver of this. So anyone who works in marketing should be astonishingly proud. I mean, it should be up there with cancer research. And yet you get, you know, brand purpose things like, oh, it's not enough. Oh, gosh, we sell soap and detergent, you know, which is actually an amazing thing in itself. Right? Human beings have lived in uncleanliness, unsanitary conditions for most of our existence. This is, um, you know, you should be very proud if you sell humble thing like soap but it's just like no 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 we have to have some other something else something else some other amazing brand purpose mm. that it is a cultural cringe it's a sort of self-loathing i think of marketers and that that i think is terrible i mean if you really hate marketing so much well get out of the profession but is it as straightforward as that is it about a hatred an adoption of purpose 
um, well, another interpretation. equates to, to hatred. I mean, just to give you an example, and they're generally held up as a company at a company level as the uh, the gold standard for purpose. I'm talking about Unilever, of course. Now, Unilever you, on really? a, a I, brand... I don't think anyone on the street would know that. Well, they Outs- would Outside have, of the marketing community. Yeah, I mean, they that. would and have point to evidence that their... Yeah, so, per, the purpose that underpins certainly Paul um, Paul Pullman a is a level. is a you know great believer in organisations being something for good, which which mm. of course they are. But you know another interpretation, the obsession with brand purposes, um, other than self loathing, is, is quite a sort of cynical one. That it, you know it's something that people often accuse marketers of, of sort of whitewashing things, trying mm. to you know greenwashing is a you know classic for environmental stuff. Mm, mm. Could say that brand purposes is just another thing of uh, example of that. Now. Of course, behind this is a lot of good intentions too, mm. but a lot, a lot of thing, a lot of good intentions come to no good. Mm. No, I, I agree with you in the sense that there's a misappropriation of it, and I am channeling lots of people who've observed your work and, in the main, agree with it, but take issue with your entire dismissal of or dismissal in its entirety of of purpose and, and engagement and some of the perhaps measures that you might describe as unnecessary and fluffy? Well, I think fortunately I still managed to keep one foot in the real world. Mm. <laughs> so I'm somewhat outside of the marketing bubble. Mm. There is a danger. Certainly we see it at Cannes, don't we, when people, advertisers giving awards to each other for things that they have noticed. Mm. Ten, 20 years ago, people on the street would go, oh, yes, yes, that was great, loved that, fabulous creativity. You know, they actually saw it. Today, you could give a list of so many of the award winners and people on the streets would just, what, never know? Mm. Don't know anything about that. Mm. whole marketing community goes, it went into an absolute tiz about was Remember Oreos, the dunking in the dark, you know, episode, real-time marketing, wasn't that amazing? It still gets trawled out as an example of... Yes. Uh, speak to someone who doesn't work in marketing and ask them if they've ever heard of this. I think maybe we're uh, looking at, I don't know if you were following the uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken crisis in the UK recently, and obviously they followed up with uh, uh, an apology ad, which has been Mm. well lauded. But I've also seen people this week talk about that it's been vastly overstated and nobody will remember it. And apart from perhaps at marketing conferences when it will get put on PowerPoint presentations as an example of wonderfully reactive creative thinking, whether or not it um, moved well, KFC along. Is don't know. It was cert- certainly creative and, and lovely lovely use of, you know, showing you can play around with things. I, yeah. I, you know, that we should celebrate creativity, but I, I do agree with the concept that we are supposed to do things in the real world. We shouldn't mm. be giving uh, awards for, for... Well, actually, there have been, haven't there? There have been some at can, awards that were given for campaigns that actually never even ran. So I understand. I suppose something that you just said there, that you are I suppose, one step removed. I mean, you've spent your life, as we discussed earlier, uh, writing, thinking, exalting marketing and marketing influence. Have you ever thought to yourself, I could do that, I will do that? You know, a career in marketing as a marketing director, as a CMO, does that appeal to you? Well, yeah, I'm sure we're always tempted sometimes, you know, never say never. But no, I love my job. But yes, I'd be much more likely to do that than to than to go into than become a vice chancellor of a university or something. I, I... <laughs> and presumably, you've had offers of positions or consultancy, permanent or otherwise. Yeah, but but I, I, I've got a big institute to run. One of the founders, so there's quite a strong attachment, and I like living in Adelaide. 
Australia. So <laughs> that might be a problem, I suppose, yes. if, if some of the bigger brands come knocking on your door. Yeah. Would you recommend you have a daughter, don't you? If, mm. uh, if she asked you, Dad, should I go into marketing? Yes, um, absolutely. Yes, I think it's a very noble profession. Yes. <laughs> if there is one thing, though, that marketers should think about changing about what they do and how they go about what they do, what would it be if there was one takeaway that you want people to Oh, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? (laughs) I might, but perhaps people listening won't. Marketing needs to move, as many other professions, and become much less theoretical, much less Mm. medieval, much more evidence-based, which means moving away from anything-goes-marketing to an understanding of uh, the, the world that we operate in. Prior to discoveries in chemistry, you had all these alchemists that were, you know, running around trying to do lovely things like turn, you know, lead into gold because that sounded like a really cool thing to do. But, you know, nowadays people don't because they know that that's not possible. Um, so, you know, understanding some of the laws of nature, understanding some scientific laws moves you away from anything goes fantasy ideas. And marketing is still one of the, you know, most anything goes areas of, of uh the organisation. I always tell the case study of you know being at a bank. You know, banks spend quite a lot of money on advertising. They may not take marketing very seriously, but they spend a lot of mm. they spend a lot of money on everything. They have a lot of money, and they announced that there was I think there was something like putting forty percent of their TV budget into outdoor. And I said, "Wow, that's obviously that's a lot of money." What led to that decision? And there was just silence around the table <laughs> until someone said, "It was Philip's idea," you know, and. I couldn't remember exactly what it was, but I thought he was quite persuasive. You know, this, this would be the equivalent in operations of saying, uh, you know, let's move the factory to Wales. Yeah. And going, oh, why, why are we doing that? It was Philip's idea. Mm. You know, I mean, we, we marketing is still Wild West. Uh, I mean, is that is that is it the same as it ever was? Or was there a time perhaps where people were more considered, used more empirical data? Are we? No, I don't think so. I think it has always been the... Wild West, so a bit. the golden oh, age of marketing is yet to yet yeah to yeah yeah. I have a good colleague who worked in an ad agency, and he, he remembers a manufacturing company who used to sort of turn up once a year with this this basically big pile of money in a almost in a you know brown paper bag, hand it over to them, and then sort of run away because they they didn't really want they didn't you know just advertising was this mysterious weird thing that they knew nothing about and didn't really want, but they knew they had to do it, so they just gave it to the agency. Mm. <laughs> The so, Wild West, indeed. Yes. And, you know, for all the talk of uh, that we're so much more, we'll have so much more data in this digital world and everything will be irrecountable, et cetera, what we've seen as a past decade of extreme Wild West behaviour, haven't we? We've, mm. we've rushed into new media like lemmings. Definitely, um, obviously, massive statements around big data and the possibilities of it, but perhaps we are lacking some genuine insight. Uh, from all that data, perhaps. Yes, I, I can't think of a single person who's actually made a real claim about what they have actually discovered using their big data. You know, big data, you know, continuously running in data. I mean, Amazon presumably is at their absolute cutting edge with their uh, you know ability to make recommendations to you based on past purchases and other customers' mm. past purchases. And you look at the... Re- I, I think if you'll find if you look at the recommendations that Amazon gives for you, they're rubbish. Never correct. Well, they're best... They're based- they based on previous behaviour, aren't they? Yeah. So. Well, they've got big continuous data. It's pumping in every second. Mm. Look what they've been able to do with it. Mm, not much. No. Talking of 
developments and and technological and perhaps even data advances, there's a constant state almost of anxiety, I think, in, in marketing about disruption, about what's next, about who the big disruptor is and um, and how that's going to change everything for everybody forever. Yes, this is a long history, isn't it? The Victorians in London felt the same, didn't they? I, I suspect it's the same as it ever was. I mean, is there something over the... If I could just ask you to get your crystal ball out for a moment, is there something that you've seen evidence of emerging and think that's going to fundamentally change the job of marketing over the next 10 years? I think there'll be more automation because there are a lot of routine things that we do in marketing. And so that just like in all areas just seems ripe for there to be some automation. That's it. I mean, I don't worry that there'll be a lack of marketing jobs, though. You know, you'll need a market just to run a shop. You'll need, a, you know, the future expectations. Competition gets harder and harder. And so I think in the future, you know, you'll be expected to, you know, have a marketing degree if you want to do you know, something like that. Mm. So I think there'll still be plenty of demand for marketing people. But the real, the high salaries will go to people who have ability to be a bit more like scientists, be, be sceptical, inquiring thinkers and know how to do experiments. Probably that's one of the biggest changes we've seen in business practice. We've seen the emergence of businesses in the in the particularly in the digital realm who are extremely experiment oriented. Mm. You know, they do A B testing on everything. They can mm. do stuff very quickly and um and they do it. A positive uplifting message almost to finish on, which is um that there is still a job out there for a marketer. But I'm gonna finish by asking you this question. What do you hope your legacy to be? when you finally put your feet up in, in in Adelaide, what mark would you want to leave on marketing? That idea of being scientific, being empirical, getting out of your office and going and looking at the real world and, and basing your decisions on patterns that you see there it becomes non-controversial in mm. marketing. The, the older culture war of art, creativity versus science, just it, the people start to realise what a... What a stupid conflict that is that I would hope would be I'd be very proud of, of that, uh, that it, look, it will happen I'd like to see it in my lifetime okay thank you for that and that's all we have time for today thank you to my guest Professor Byron Sharp you have been listening to Market and Wheat Meet sponsored by Salesforce and brought to you by something else with me Russell Parsons and producer Laura Hyde Please join us next month where we will be joined by Global Inclusion Director at Aviva, Jan Goodin. Until then, goodbye. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers and lower costs. 